Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Before we get to today's interview, quick announcement. The Big Change program will open up next week. So watch your inbox if you get my email newsletter. If not, you should get my email newsletter. You can get it at plantyourself.com. All right. Today's guest is Bradley Stolberg, a writer for New York Magazine and Outside Magazine. And he writes about the connections between exercise and human physiology and psychology and about human peak performance. He's interviewed many of the world's elite athletes, and he has synthesized their insights into valuable lessons for the rest of us. So I first came across his work in this article that I just found so beautiful, beautifully researched, beautifully written, beautifully conceived. It's called How Exercise Shapes You Far Beyond the Gym. I want to read the first paragraph for you. Bradley writes, when I first started training for marathons a little over 10 years ago, my coach told me something I've never forgotten that I would need to learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I didn't know it at the time, but that skill cultivated through running would help me as much, if not more, off the road as it would on it. So if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been hearing snip snippets of my own story, you'll know that that's kind of my theme of this year, learning how to get comfortable with discomfort. From my interview with Mark Schoen, author of Your Survival Instinct is Killing You, to my work with Glenn Murphy, my martial arts instructor, who finally got me to pour a five-gallon bucket of freezing cold water over my head every morning, uh, to my work with Josh Lajani, uh, turning me into an ultra runner, willing to, not willing to, hell, eager to embrace the kind of non-destructive pain that is going to make me grittier and is going to make me perform better in the long run. So I reached out to Brad to learn more about him, about his research, and as soon as we started talking, I realized I found a kindred spirit. So I hope you have as much fun listening to our conversation as I had participating in it. So without further ado, Bradley Stolberg, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Howard. Yeah, so you, you came to my attention because of an article that I have probably shared with as many people as anything I've ever shared. Um, oh, wow. Which is, uh, it was in uh, New York Magazine, and the title is How Exercise Shapes You Far Beyond the Gym. Um, and, I, and I shared it with, pe with people largely to just, like, have them understand me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's, 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 so, it's so clearly written and well-referenced and, and, and comprehensive. Um, and I see, you, you know, you've, 
you've done a lot of writing for for Outside Magazine. You write about physical fitness, and you've uh, you have a lot of personal experience as well as um, research and interviews. And so, I just I wanted to kind of explore what you have discovered about like how physical activity um, ha- has maybe less less than obvious positive impacts upon our life. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite topics um, to, to think about in research. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to, to having this conversation. Well, so- you know, I think it, 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 to me it starts with this notion of learning how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and I think that it's in the piece that I wrote for New York Magazine, it's one of the governing thoughts, um, is that physical fitness is really a, a good venue to practice being uncomfortable in, in modern society that's so built around being comfortable. Um, there aren't too many venues to do that. Yeah. And that was, that was really what, what got me and it's, and it's been a long time, you know, just me personally, that's been an insight that I have to admit, I was about 50 years old before I grasped. So I'm I'm curious, like just you know, before we get into the 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 details of that, like what's do you mind sharing like your story about you know being an athlete and and competing or just you know recreationally and where and when you first encountered that notion of of using using a- activity to to be comfortable with discomfort? Yeah. So I I grew up. Um playing sports. I always loved sports. Um, I, I played high school football and basketball and um, was a decent high school football player, but never really good enough to play to play at a big school in college. Um, so when I went to college, I was, I was at a little bit of a, a loss. Um, I was always the first guy in and the last guy out of the weight room in high school, but it was always to serve an end, which was to be a better football player. It's not like I ever was lifting weights for vanity. Um, so I kind of struggled. I had no fitness goals. I was a little bit aimless. Um, and I ended up losing a bet to a friend. I know it sounds kind of cliche, but it's a true story. And, uh, as the result of my loss, I had to go on a five mile run with him. And, um, I'd be lying if I said it was like love at first sight. And I liked, you know, fell in love with running, but I didn't hate it. Um, so at that point during undergraduate school, probably right around when I was 19 years old, I, um, I started to get pretty into running and, and hooked on running and endurance sports. Uh, I'm 30 right now. So since then, over the last 10 years, um, my main, my main fitness practice has been more, more in the realm of endurance sports. And I think that's, that's where I learned this notion, um, or at least experienced the benefit far beyond the physical, um, benefits of, uh, of fitness. Hmm. Now, so you, you were the first one in the weight room and the last one out. Now I've, I haven't spent a lot of time in weight rooms actually since high school, but I do remember how unpleasant it was. Um, and you know, and I wasn't, I was just doing it for girls, you know, honestly, I, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't playing anything in particular. Um, but what, what was the difference? I'll tell you what, at that age, at that age, doing it for girls might be more of a motivating factor than for football. Hard to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, if you get, if you get knocked over, by an offensive tackle, like you, you can pin that more clearly to your fitness than like getting rejected yeah. from the Valentine's dance. It wasn't like, totally. oh, if, if only I'd done another set. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just giving you a hard time. I agree. <laughs> 
so when when you started running, like um, like that first run, um, you know, were you? I imagine your your friend who won the bet was um, in better shape for for running. Like, were you just trying to keep up? Yeah, I think I was just trying to keep up. I mean, he again, we're young. We're like 19 years old. I think he was just looking for someone to run with um, at, at school. And so he, he probably tempered the pace for me looking back on it. I'm sure he could have run me into the ground if he wanted to. So yeah, I was just trying to get through it. Um, I mean, the only running I had ever done was for punishment, right? In football, if you have to run around the left field, if you do something wrong, you break a rule. So it's, it's pretty wild that now I voluntarily will go out and run as long as possible. <laughs> so what, what was the difference for you when you started getting into endurance between that kind of sort of self not punishment, but you know that 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 kind of discomfort versus the discomfort of the weight room or the 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 football scrimmage. You know, so I think I think that it probably has less to do with the change in sport and just more to do with like maturity and growing up and a changing mindset. Um, I'm sure that if I were to go back and get on a, a hard weight training program right now, I'd reap many of the, the same benefits that I, the, the same psychological benefits, obviously very different physiological benefits, but the same psychological benefits um, that I do from running. So I think it probably has more with just becoming more introspective um, than, than the actual sport itself. That's, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, like I said earlier, when I was playing football, it everything was a means to an end and the end was winning football games. Whereas when I started running, sure, I was goal oriented at first. I wanted to do a 10 K then a half marathon then marathons, then get my time lower. Um, but it's not like I was getting paid to do it. I wasn't on a team. Um, I was, I was really just competing with myself. So I think that I was more open to being able to draw benefits just from, from the joy and participation in running versus running for some other end, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's something that I've discovered cause you know, I've, I've run on and off for, for a long time, but only recently did I like enter a race. And it's really interesting to me to see the interplay between doing it for its own sake and also having a competition like, like, it's definitely partly means to an end, but at the same time, it's totally for its own sake. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, like I said, I think it was probably more of a, a change of mindset, but what I noticed, um, so when I graduated, get back a little bit to my story. When I graduated from school, I went to work for, um, a pretty fast paced corporate consulting firm. Um, you know, what many would call a, a fairly high stress job. And on days that I had done a hard run or just when I was in the middle of training hard, it seemed like I was more calm and less phased by things that were phasing my peers at work. Huh. Um, and it's almost, you know, looking back, what I'd say is after you've done a hard interval workout in the morning, very, very few things are going to be as uncomfortable Huh. is that that you're going to confront throughout the rest of the day. <laughs> so you had and you you had a kind of a, a an objective hard day. Like you know like I think mean, one of the things I want to talk about is this article you just wrote about um you know the zen of running and you you quote this philosopher who talks about sort of contrived metrics. 
right? Mm-hmm. So, so like, and especially at a consulting company, like to some extent, it's all contrived metrics, like how well you're doing, right? Was that was that was that part of it that you know, as a, as a yeah, as a you, young you person, hit, you hit, go ahead. You hit the nail on the head, Howard. I mean, absolutely. That's that's when I, you know, that article I recently wrote on Zen and the Art of Running was was based on journals that I had written when I was at the consulting firm. Um, and it's at that time that I really fell in love with running. And I think you're a hundred percent right because in, in consulting, everything is contrived and whether or not you do a good, you know, quote unquote, good job based on so many factors that are so subjective that you don't control. It's based on the politics at the consulting firm. It's based on the politics at the client organization, whether or not they adopt your recommendations. I mean, there are so many so many interim steps between the work that you do and the results that it's almost impossible to say that I had a direct impact. My, my work, my actions had a direct impact on the outcome. Whereas running is completely the opposite. It's, it's just you, you know, some people run barefoot. I don't, but it's just you, a pair of shoes in the road (laughs) and you're competing against very, very objective metrics, right? There's time and there's distance. And neither of those things lie. There are very few things that get in between. Am I getting faster? Can I run farther? Um, which is so juxtaposed to the kind of the kind of good that I was experiencing in the corporate world. Yeah, and and, and I feel myself sometimes chafing against those objective metrics. Like I'm um, I'm trying to play this mind game. Like, well, what what about um, you know, elevation? Like <laughs> trying to give my trying yeah. trying to you know to weasel out of putting in the effort that's going to get me the, you know, the, the 52 minute 10 K this morning or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so, so, um, how, how did, how did running then affect your, your sense of calm? Like, you know, it, it, it didn't add objective metrics to your, uh, consulting job. But what, what did it do for you at, at that place? How did it like change your thinking or your physiology or, or what? Yeah. So I, I, you know, what I was experiencing back then, and at the time I, I, I didn't really have the science um, until recently, until I, I researched for the New York Mag article. But um, like I said, I, I just felt like things that might have once phased me ceased to phase me. Um, and, and it comes back to that opening line that I said, I think I just, I was learning how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. At the time I was trying to run fast and push myself and running fast and pushing yourself is largely about just being able to sit with and be okay with, with not feeling great um, during a hard run. Obviously you don't want to run yourself into the ground, overstretch yourself, you'll get injured. But the process of, of training to run a fast marathon um, at the end of the day, it's pretty hard. A lot of mornings are spent kind of grinding your teeth, getting through runs. And, um, yeah, you know, I'd finish a run and I'd, I'd get to work and something, something came up at work that might be quite stressful to a lot of my colleagues and my peers. And, um, I just, I seem to have a different reaction. And I noticed that other people that I worked with that were, somewhat serious athletes. And this gets back to, you know, it's not just running. Some were cyclists. One guy was a power lifter. Um, They just kind of shared that with me. It's like, okay, like this has come our way. We need to focus on what we can control. Keep our, keep our minds 
you know, level-headed, stay calm, stay cool, stay collected, um, and not freak out. And I started to notice that it was a common theme that a lot of athletes were able to confront these challenges with a somewhat more stoic, level-headed demeanor than, than those that didn't participate um, in, in sports and in pushing their body. So at that point, I started to view running not only as this practice that gave me an objective good, which kind of fulfilled this, this need I felt that I had to strive for something that, that was all on me, but it also became a practice to, to cultivate a little bit more resistance to stress. And I want to be careful. I'm by no means bulletproof. You can ask my wife. I get stressed out about stupid stuff all the time, probably just a little bit less more than if I didn't run. <laughs> right. Well, it's, yes, it's, we, 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 we who, who do it most need it most, right? Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot of truth to that. So one thing I've heard about the consulting world, and this might, this might date me a few years um, when I was, I was sort of on the periphery of it around the year 2000, so it might, it might have changed, but I doubt it, is that these top-tier, high-power corporate consulting firms look for really smart people who are insecure, <laughs> So, so they can motivate them to like, you know, 80 hour work weeks and constantly be trying to like improve the PowerPoint. Um, so first of all, I'm wondering if that's, you know, just a, a silly stereotype or if there's some, some truth to that in your experience. I think it's hard to say. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't want to paint that broad of a swath. I, I do think that I mean, clearly they're going after smart people because a lot of consulting is problem, problem solving, um, in, in strong communication. The insecurity thing is different. You know, I, I don't know, like I, I don't have any data or evidence to back that, mm. but based on, based on what I have researched and what I have learned about people that, you know, are willing to push and kind of become obsessed and, and workaholics, um, yeah, I think a lot of people do have some kind of void that they're trying to fill or, or a little bit of an insecurity that they're kind of trying to prove to themselves and others that they can do it. Yeah, and the, the reason I wanted to to address that is because, you know, you mentioned, and, you know, just very sort of offhand, that when you're, when you're running and pushing yourself, you don't want to do it to the point of injury. And one of my big challenges has been to, 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 to play with that edge, to learn the difference between pain and damage. And that's like a big theme in, in my like social interactions with people and work interactions where like I would avoid conversations where I thought I was going to be criticized because it felt like it was going to be damaging as opposed to just uncomfortable and painful. Yeah. I, it's a, it's such a, such a wise insight, Howard. I totally agree with you. Um, I think that, you know, physiologically, if you look at how a muscle grows, it grows after it is stressed and then allowed to recover. But if the muscle is stressed too much, i.e. you pick up way too heavy of a weight or you go out and you run way too hard and way too long, you're going to injure the muscle and that's bad. It's, it's maladaptive. So you, you, you really need to dial in the right dose of stress and then make sure that you follow it with some rest and recovery. And while that's the key to physiological growth, I'm completely with you. I think that there's a lot of psychological growth, spiritual growth, cognitive growth that occurs in those same cycles. So you want to push yourself, you want to make yourself uncomfortable, but you can't cross the edge. And if you're constantly stressing yourself in an uncomfortable position, you're likely to burn out. 
Mm. And I think that's true of sport or anything else in life. Yeah. So, um, when, when did you, uh, start, uh, your, your free freelance or I don't know if your, your writing career. Yeah, I started writing, um, about three and a half years ago. So I'd always, I'd always loved writing. It's just that I was writing for an audience of one, which was myself for, uh-huh. <laughs> for seven years of my writing career. Um, but over the last um, three years, I've become more serious about it, and, um, and, and now it's what I do professionally. Uh-huh. And, and were you in, interested at first in writing about you know, sports and physical things? or, or like what's, what was, your, what was your, the beat you thought you were going for? Yeah, I think, I think fitness and social science. Um, and, and as you, you can see from some of my, my articles, like the one in New York Magazine, I, I really try to, to merge the two. Um, I think that there's a lot of siloed thinking, you know, so staying within a domain. So there's social scientists think about social science and physiologists think about physiologists and physicists think about physics. Um, but I think that there's a lot of lessons and themes that, that kind of apply more broadly. And, and those are some of the themes that I'm most interested in learning about and covering. Hmm. So what, what, were, what were some of the first things that you wanted to explore? Yeah. So I, uh, you know, be, beyond just this article, I'm, I'm really fascinated around the, the psychology and, and I guess you could almost call it like the behavioral economics um, of, of fitness. So how things like willpower play out in a, a high-performance training environment. Um, things like the fresh start effect, which is this notion that you're more likely to start a diet or a new workout program or, or any kind of new goal on a Monday or the first of the month or the first of the quarter or the first of the year, because it psychologically it kind of creates this clean slate. So I was curious to see if that could be harnessed for some kind of training effect. Um, so I guess kind of like more creative slants on, on traditional health and fitness writing. Hmm. Now, a lot of, um, I guess the people that you interview, te- te- I think of them as outliers, like uh, you know, Olympic marathoner Des Linden or, or surfer Nick Lamb. Like, do you find that there are lessons from the outliers for the rest of us? Yeah, I do. Um, I actually have a book on that on that very topic coming out next year. Um, so yeah, I think that there's, you know, it kind of comes back to like I was saying, the different disciplines are in siloed, and you can start to see some themes. And when you talk to elite performers across different disciplines there are absolutely a couple of themes that emerge in, in how they approach their craft, even beyond sports. So across sports, a, a great surfer, a great mountaineer, a great runner, um, they end up doing many things quite similarly. Um, but even like a great artist and a great mathematician, I, there, there are a, a few, more than a few common threads as, as to how they approach their work. Huh. Can, you, can you give us some previews before the book comes out? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so I think one, one that we already touched on a little bit is this notion of, of working in cycles of stress and rest um, and, and how that's really the key to, to growth, be it physical or, or mental or psychological, or if you want to call it spiritual, a, a, across the board. So um, I guess what I mean by this is most elite performers stay out of the gray area. So they're either working full tilt very, very intensely, 
or they are able to turn it off and shut it down and really rest and recover. And Hmm. they're constantly repeating the cycle of working very, very hard and then resting and recovering and growing a little bit and then working a little bit harder, resting and recovering and growing more. Gosh, Um, I think, you know, one of the things I do uh, have done and still do for a living is I coach um, like high performers in, in the corporate world. And if they heard you say that, they'd be quaking in their boots. Like they would have this fear of recovery and, yeah. and an even greater fear of being seen recovering. And you're, yeah. t- and you're, and you're saying like, that's one of the, that's like the first thing you thought of in terms of like really elite performance. Yeah. You know, 100% true. Um, that, that they'd probably have that reaction and it's so critical to elite performance. Um, you know, when you get into the science too, of like what happens when you sleep, that's when your brain consolidates memory, new neural connections are formed. Like it, you're not getting smarter or more advanced. If you're an entrepreneur or a business person while you're staying awake, grinding the midnight oil, you're often much, much, much better off to sleep and recover because not only are you going to feel better and have more physiological energy, but your brain will actually function better. Hmm. Um, what, what I like to say is that the great athletes, elite performers have the courage to rest. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's, it, it, really, it, feels like, it feels like courage because resting... It, it's it's it really you know this that that sort of cycle and periodicity is really missing from our culture. It is, it is, and it takes courage. I mean, a great athlete could look and say, "Well, my peers are still training, right?" There, I forgot who said it or what the exact quote is, but there's that quote that if you're not working, someone else is. And yeah. I think that that applies to sport, that applies to the corporate world, it applies to school and students. Um. But what I have realized based on my work interviewing elite performers and then in, in the research is that, yes, you need to work really, really hard, but you also need to recover. Because if you don't recover, you don't really ever get to work hard and you kind of get stuck in this gray in-between zone where you're just constantly grinding, but it's not your best work because it can't be your best because you're not recovering. Right. And then and, and it becomes a vicious cycle, right? Because then you see you're not performing and so the only solution is to do more. Bingo. And and in athletics, we call it overtraining. Um, And it's basically, you know, overtraining is you see that you're not performing, you do more, and you end up getting injured, hurt, and and the the kind of tail end symptom of overtraining is burnout. And I think that applies 100% to the corporate world as well. Hmm. That is such a a rich topic. I can... uh... I can I can say I'm really looking forward to uh, to your book. What, what's what's another uh, common thread that elite performers can teach the rest of us? Yeah. So um, another another common thread is this this notion of developing uh, a purpose and or a sense of meaning um, behind behind your pursuit or behind the work that you do. Uh, very, very, very rarely, I think I can only think of it on one occasion, and I'm not going to name him or her, have I interviewed someone and said, like, I'm doing this because I want to be a world champion, because it will make me feel good. Huh. Um, there's almost always some kind of greater cause or purpose uh, linked linked to the pursuit of excellence, and there's a 
a, a wide body of evidence showing that having that greater purpose um, does wonders for sustainable motivation. And there's even some newer newer research that shows that physiologically um, being invested in a purpose beyond yourself might might actually help you get more out of your body. Mm, so you're talking about like what, what what are some examples of of senses of meaning or purpose that have motivated people? Yeah, so I think a, a common one is religion in athletes. You often hear an athlete will cross the finish line of a big race and say, you know, I I was doing this for God. I have my God to thank. Um, family is another is another large purpose, right? You're doing this because my family gave so much for me, and, and this is how I provide for them. Um, outside of athletics, and, and, and a lot of artists will talk about uh, just bringing joy to other people's life, and, and, and they make great work for other people to bring joy to their life. Sometimes you'll get someone that dedicates something to a family member that may have a disease or may have recently passed away. Um, a lot, lots of professors will will figure out ways to tie their work to, to some sort of greater good. Um, and I think it's having, having those kind of ties that are beyond oneself that, that can really work as fuel to, to motivate the pursuit of excellence. Mm. Yeah. And it's, I, I guess like when you're, when you're doing it for yourself uh, or, you know, if you've, if you've given, if you have some sort of concrete reason or goal, then that that's kind of an upper limit, right? It's not, it sounds like what you're saying is that something where that 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 is sort of infinite. Like there's, you know, like if I say, all right, I want to I want to earn a hundred thousand dollars this year. Like that might be a stretch goal, but it also could be like the upper limit. Whereas if I say I'm I'm gonna you know I want to grow my business to the point where I'm you know helping fifty thousand people get healthy, and I'm gonna you know set up a nonprofit, like that kind of leaves it infinite. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it sets a much higher, or as you point out, in some cases, an, an, an infinite boundary for what's possible. Um, and I, I think that it helps to remove uh, a lot of fear in, in getting back to insecurities and perhaps insecurities that we hold. Because if, if we're doing something purely for ourselves, it's very easy to get all wrapped up in ourself and in our own ego. Mm. And there's all kinds of fear, right? I want to take a risk because if I fail, it's going to reflect negatively on me. Um, whereas if, if you're doing something for a greater cause, I think you're much more likely to, to almost transcend that notion of yourself and, and move beyond your fears um, and, and push the envelope a little bit more. There's some fascinating research that shows that when individuals um, meditate on their core values, so quite closely linked to a sense of purpose, they're much more likely um, to, to take on challenging causes and succeed. Huh. That's, that's good to know, because one, one of the things I do with, with some of my clients who are trying to improve their lives is I, I borrowed something from cognitive behavioral psychology, and I have people write out a note card with like all their transcendent reasons for wanting to lose weight, get healthy, and they read it every day, every morning. Um, as kind of a lodestone because then when they're at the, at the luncheon and they get to make good or bad choices, they, they have their transcendent reasons still fresh in their minds. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's I, like you said, that's backed in so much science, um, which makes sense, right? I think that personally, I know that my core values help to ground me um, 
but you know, easy to say, hard to do, right? Like, actually, it's not too hard to do, but I often don't. Like, it would be wonderful if I started my day with a short reflection on my core values. It's something that I strive to do every day, but I don't do every day. Um, but it's these little practices that I think can go a long way. They add up. Yeah, right. Well, may, may, maybe if you spent a few minutes thinking about your core values, you would then spend some time thinking about your core values. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so catch 22 there. All right. Well, how about one, one, one more common thread in high performers? Yeah. Um, they just don't care about the minutia. Huh. So you, you've got, you know, in order to be really good at something, you need to obviously specialize, but it's not, it's not even about like only doing one thing at the expense of everything else. It's just not caring about small stuff that might otherwise um, detract from one's energy. And, and this kind of gets back to where we started, right? And like, like the kind of Zen in the art of, 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 uh, of running and, and being okay with being uncomfortable. Um, but in, in all of my interviews, and especially when I get to spend time with some of these folks in person, um, they all just kind of have this demeanor where like, they're not concerned about how they look or about what they're going to wear that day. They're not concerned about, you know, like where, where they might end up eating dinner. Some Olympic athletes actually are quite concerned about that, but that's for a whole different variety of reasons. Um, but it's almost as if they're not wasting any energy on the minutia so they can channel it all towards their pursuit. Huh. That's re that's really interesting. Um, um, and again, you know, and, and I could I could go on forever. I'm I'm super interested in, in intellectually stimulated value topics. There, that insight rests on a large body of research as well. Um, that shows that we only have so much energy. Our, our willpower is, is this limited reservoir, and even things that seem trivial, like deciding what to wear, it taps into that willpower just a little bit. And if you have enough trivial things that you care about throughout the day you know, maybe you lose eight or 9% of your energy and that can make a huge difference when you're really going for something. Right. I think that's the, that ego depletion research. Yeah, exactly. Right. But this, it seems like that's that... the first, I'm not, I'm not the first person to bring this up, right? There's that president Obama owns two suits and like they're the same. He owns more than two suits, but only two styles. So he can reach into his closet and not have to think about what he wears. Uh, Albert Einstein was known for wearing the same thing every day. Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. So other others have pointed this out as, as a kind of an example, but I think that obviously extends well beyond what you're going to wear. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's funny. I'm 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 struggling with that this week. My my wife's out of town, and so like I have to decide like how much to shave and what parts of my face and. Whether I, you know, like I look in the mirror and I'm getting like grosser and grosser. And like yesterday I decided, hey, let's try a goatee. And this morning my son looked at it and nearly puked. And so I, I just had a mustache and then he refused to let me in his room. And <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's so, it's so much easier when you decide once and you never have to decide again. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, there's a balance because like the, the pursuit of excellence can also make someone pretty robotic. Um, and, and I try to withhold values, right? Like winning an Olympic gold medal is so awesome and you give up a lot to do it. So I think that, um, what I always tell people and what I tell myself is, is you have to find the right balance. And ultimately this gets to the last theme is, is really self-awareness. 
Um, if I could say there's one thing to focus on, it's just being honestly, truly self-aware and being reflective about what your goals are, what you're doing to achieve them, what are the trade-offs, um, and just trying to bring that stuff into your awareness pretty frequently. Mm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the thing that I think running hard has taught me the most is like the, like those conversations with myself about trade-offs are a really positive thing. It's almost like, like I used to think of them as like compromises or sacrifices, but now I think of it as like, I have this full wallet and I'm at the toy store and I can't have everything, but I could have anything. I love it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, that you know, that's uh, you know, a friend of mine posted his run on Strava. He did a five mile run at about like a seven twenty pace, and okay. or seven ten. And I'm looking at that, and I'm I'm training for my first ultra, so my pace is generally like ten, eleven, you know. And I looked at that, and I'm like, I want that. And like the little kid in me was like, you know, I want it now. And then as I reflected, I was like, boy, I'm really looking forward to the pain. That, that you know the cost of get because I can do five miles in seven seven minute miles like I, I I know I can do it physically I just know it's going to cost me a lot and I was kind yeah. of excited about paying it. Yeah, I think that you know it. it I can very much empathize with you. Um, there's there's that just almost like masochistic element of running, right? But um, it's, it's it's there and it's real. Yeah, well, you know, I, I learned a phrase from from Dan Ariely, who's a, a behavioral economist at yeah, Duke. Yeah, of course. He, he talks about benign masochism, and mm-hmm. you know, his 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 team has done some studies of like CrossFit people and cyclists, and it's really it's really interesting. You brought up behavioral economics. Like one one of the books that I really like is is um, called The Power of Fifty Bits by Bob Neese. Who's like a, okay, I'm actually not, not familiar with that. Yeah. Oh, he's not he's not a researcher, but he knows all the research and he he applies it at a at a, a big company that he either founded or or has a big hand in. And one of the things he he talks about a lot is uh, like the mathematics of procrastination, which is like whatever we want, what you know, whatever whatever we think about the future, we discount by like fifty percent. So like the, mm-hmm. our future goals or, or the future pain of exercising is going to be down by 50%. Whereas like right now, if I think about like having an ice cream right now, that's like a hundred percent. So, so my, my short-term desires are almost always twice as loud as my long-term desires. And yeah. it's like the idea of this benign masochism means that I take the, the long-term pain, and I actually convert it to this concept of short-term gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I think that's, you know, it's 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 a it's a kind of a mind hack that I think athletes, um, kind of instinctively do. Like in, I mean, I think that I think that they have to, right? And I think again, this this is kind of my beat and where my mind always goes. But I I argue that that extends beyond sport as well. Whereas if you, if you're constantly trying to suppress or resist the pain, you're not going to last. And let's, let's, let's not just say pain because that's very, very physical, but discomfort. Um, so if you're, if, if you're avoiding this uncomfortable situations or if when you get in uncomfortable situations, it's kind of like you're, you're grinding your teeth together and you're waiting for it to be over. 
Mm. A, that's just not very pleasant. And then B, you're going to avoid those situations. Or if those situations come up frequently, you, you, you probably won't last in what you're doing. Or if you do last, you're, you're not going to be very happy about it. Yeah. So it gets back to your switch. I think that there's so much power in accepting it and saying, okay, this hurts, but it's supposed to hurt because I'm pushing my body. Or this is really uncomfortable, but it's supposed to be uncomfortable because I'm in the middle of a huge corporate murder. Um, and it's that, it's being able to accept that and, and realize, and it's not just me giving self-help. There's tons of science. I'd be glad to, to send you the links after for, for listeners. There's tons of science that says that growth happens when we put ourselves in those uncomfortable situations. Mm. Yeah, we had, when, when I was doing uh, the corporate consulting stuff, we had a phrase, uh, AFGO, A-F-G-O, which stood for another growth opportunity. Yep. <laughs> Um, I, you know, it's, it's, I don't have it in front of me, but Nick Lamb, you mentioned him earlier. Um, one of the, uh, one of the great performers that I've interviewed, he's, he's a world champion, big wave surfer. He, he spoke a lot just about the work that he's done, um, with a sports psychologist on, on getting comfortable with fear and being able to embrace fear and, and growing from it. Mm. Um, um, yeah, yeah so- I think, you know. Yeah, I'm pulling it up right now. He he told me that it's only when you step outside your comfort zone that you grow. Being uncomfortable is the path to personal development. It is the opposite of complacency. I fear I feel fear all the time. I never try to ignore it. Instead, I use the heightened sensation to my advantage. Um, and this is coming from someone that rides three to five story waves. Um, so it's neat, right? And and this has been a huge learning experience for me. For a while, I thought that a lot of these adventure athletes like they didn't feel fear. And it's completely the opposite. They feel fear all the time. They feel discomfort. They've just figured out how to do that mindset switch that you talked about and embrace it, not try to suppress it, and even channel it and use it. Yeah, I guess the, the, the big wave surfers who don't feel fear are not alive for you to interview. Yeah, that, that could also be the case. Hmm. <laughs> um. It's it's weird though cuz you know you're you're kind of telling this this story that is like it's not just about be like how to, how an average person can become an athlete but how an average person can become like an excellent human being which you would think like we all would want to be like this has like universal appeal and yet when you look at like our society like this is a really hard message to get across in terms of like marketing you know that like the the way to get what you want is to, you know, be uncomfortable and suffer a little. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. I think that societally, right, comfort king. I I I literally can't open. Excuse me. I can't close my fam. My family. My parents have a, an SUV, and even if I wanted to, I couldn't close the trunk using my own hands. I can only press a button. <laughs> So if that's the point that we've gotten to where things are so rigged to make us comfortable, um, you know, it's kind of a message that you have to swim upstream and there aren't that many, like you have to create your own opportunities to do it, um, you, you know, to an extent. Right. Which I guess. But it's the same society that you said also will tell you that you should 
grind the midnight oil and that you shouldn't sleep and that you should work, 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 um, which is to me equally as problematic. Huh. Yeah, that seems pretty uh, schizo. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And I guess the, um, you know, the, the, the split is like, you're not supposed to be self-aware while you're doing it. You're not, you're not doing it for the thing. You're doing it for the, the, the salary and the bonus and the retirement, right? So we, we live in a society of delayed gratification in which everybody is addicted to instant gratification. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very wise. <laughs> that's really, that's, that's, that's weird to think about. Uh, and I think the ideal thing is that, that you find something that you're doing that both leads to long-term growth and fulfillment and that you enjoy in the here and now. I mean, that's a big part of the reason why I've shifted from consulting to writing. Um, simply because, and I'm forfeiting tons of dollars to do it, but I, I like writing more. I enjoy it more. It fulfills me more. Um, for a whole manner of reasons, it could be a whole other conversation. Um, but at the same time, it's not to say that writing is easy. Writing is very, very hard for me. And there are days where I wish it would just be over and it's not. Um, <laughs> but I, I do my best to, to practice what I preach. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, you know, for me, writing is, is like, you know, uh, depending on the day, a daily 10 K or a marathon, like there's, there's, there's a part where I just have to force myself to sit and yeah. and not do everything else that just seems so much more important. Yeah. I mean, running and writing, there are so many parallels between the two. It gets back to that stress plus rest equals growth, that kind of cycle that I, um, that I alluded to. I approach my writing in the same way. So much like you just said, there are days where I really don't want to write, but you just have to sit down show up and do the work much like running. But there are also times when I can get like in a real groove and it takes a lot of courage for me to step away and be like, you know what? I've written like 2000 words today. If I push any harder, I'm going to completely drain myself. I'm going to mm. step away and, and, and turn it off. And I struggle mightily to turn it off. Um, you know, with both running and writing, actually, like my, my biggest weakness as an athlete and probably my biggest weakness as a writer. And you could even say a person is the inability to turn it off. So as an athlete, that means I'm injury prone because I often push too hard. I, I don't always have the courage to rest appropriately. Um, and as a writer, it's, it's really hard at the end of the day to, to just be able to say I'm done for the day and, and turn it off. Yeah. Yeah. I can see. Yeah. And then like, what if it never comes back? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I do. Uh, I, Howard, I, I don't know about you, but I sleep with a little notebook next to, to my bed on my nightstand. Um, cause I'll often wake up in the middle of the night and like have worked something out on paragraph five of page 34 that I couldn't figure out. So I make sure that I can write that down. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. When I, 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 I wish I was that disciplined. I just have like backs of envelopes and stuff. Then I look at it and it's like, you know, terrible handwriting and I have no, you know, I have no idea what I was thinking, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, but you can't have your phone in your bedroom, right? Because there's all kinds of sciences, so that's a no-no. So you, you get, you get, you're, you're in between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, the phone, the phone is tough. Um, 
You know, sometimes sometimes it'll go on airplane mode. Sometimes it'll just be like, you know, four feet away on the floor. Um, I've tried the orange safety glasses for uh, versus uh, mm. the blue screens. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, back to this where we started talking about like, you know, the, your this this article that caught my eye was like basically like the neuroscience and the physiology of of running and exercise. It's like there's something really, really natural about human beings with our two legs running, and there's and there's something really unnatural about a lot of our lives, like the fact that I'm sitting in a chair right now, or I don't need to like expend calories to go find calories. You know, like the the phones in our bedroom is just one one more example of how how hard it is to to live like a natural you know, homo sapiens. Yeah, very much. Um, you're, you're not going to get an argument from me out of that. I think where, what I'm trying, the message that I am trying to, to send through my writing and what I continue to learn is that the best way to function in this society that we haven't necessarily evolved, we haven't caught up with yet is to make sure that we're protecting time to get back to our roots and engage in some of those more natural activities because paradoxically doing those more natural activities will make us better able to perform in what, what we might call a more unnatural society. And I don't necessarily think it's unnatural. It's just the, the pace of technological change around us is moved much faster than our ability to adapt to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that you're not making a, a distinction but there is, you know, there are, there are sort of physiological imperatives that we have, you know, that maybe in, a, in another million years we would adapt to uh, to iPhones and and uh, SUV doors, <laughs> like what well, you know we, you know, I don't know, lose opposable thumbs or something. <laughs> but uh, right, but, it, but it's hard. It's hard for me to be values neutral because, like, I'm a fitness nerd. I'm into health. Again, I don't always practice what I preach, but I certainly preach it a lot. So I'm a lot like you, like. Part of me is like, man, I hope that doesn't happen, but evolution just happens. Um, it's, it's really hard to control. But yeah, I think in this day and age, the pace of the things around us is, like I, I'm going to repeat myself, has got it has exceeded our ability to adapt to it. And it's really important to make sure that we we protect time to engage in things that are more natural. Yeah. So I want to come back to uh, your recent piece on the, on the Zen of running. Um, so, you know, I, I do my running, you know, so I'm sort of the loneliness of the long distance runner. Uh, I run, you know, the, the rural routes around my house. But when I, when I see like the most people I see running are running on treadmills at the gym with headphones in and they're watching their personal screens like how zen is that? Is you think you know is that is that fine or do you do you find that a little problematic? So I have to be careful here. I I try not to be too self righteous. So I think that all move all movement is good and all fitness and running is better than no fitness and running. So if the only way that you're going to get yourself to the gym to be able to run or hop on the elliptical or the stair climb or whatever it is, is to have your phone playing music while watching a movie on your iPad. It's not how I go about it, but you know, if that's what it takes to get to the gym and as a result, you're going to exercise for 45 minutes to an hour every day, 
that's great. Go, go for it. I'm, I'm fully supportive of it. Uh-huh. I think that there's, you still get a lot of physical benefits from it and you might even get some new psychological benefits. You're doing something that's uncomfortable. Your, your body might be saying, no, go back to sleep, but you're forcing it to go to the gym. I think that that's wonderful. That's great. Um, what I have realized is, is I, I, I get a lot more out of running than the physical and even the psychological by turning it all off. And like you, um, heading out to the trails, running on rural roads, um, not listening to music and really just, just using running as almost like a moving meditation. Um, that works for me, but it's not like I first came into running, you know, at first I, I listen to music and sometimes I still do. Um, so I try not to be, not to be too judgmental, but I will say that this, you know, the article Zen in the Art of Running talks a lot about the kind of quality that's created when you get so involved in the act of running that it's kind of like you become one with the run and it gets you a lot more in tune with how your body works and how your body responds to different things. Um, that cannot happen if you've got nine other things going on while you're running. Right. And I wasn't thinking in terms, in terms of necessarily, you know, passing judgment, but just like if you're putting on miles, every step you're either like function, you know, it's, it's like a car with the, you know, the axle slightly out, you know, if you, if you don't notice that it's going to eventually lead to a breakdown and yep. like running is, is such, as you said, you know, just knit your body, maybe a pair of sneakers in the road and every single step is giving you feedback and yeah. just in terms of, of, of form and, and health and, and sustainability. Like I think it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful place to practice self-awareness. Yeah. So maybe, maybe even if you just say like, you know, I'm just going to do it for two minutes at the beginning or the end. Um, yeah. I think that that's, that's, that's really good advice. Um, and there's something to say, again, now I'm just speaking personally. So I, I, I wouldn't say like I practice one form of running. Um, sometimes I enjoy a group run with friends and we're chatting the whole time. That, those are great. They're uplifting. Um, they're wonderful. I look forward to them. Um, I don't often run with music, but when I do, I like it. It's kind of like a treat. Um, and then when I go out and I run without music, there, I, I really also just like letting my mind wander. So not being aware of anything and just whatever pops in kind of playing with it. And then when it goes, it goes. Mm. Um, I find that I, I can have often like, I'll think of, Oh, I want to write a story about this topic and, and just have popped into my head out of nowhere. Um, and then there are other runs where I'm very deliberate about, I really want to focus and pay attention on, on what's going on in my body and, and, and what it feels like as I, as I hit the ground and as I push off the ground. Um, and you know, the most I can probably do that is probably 10 minutes. And then, and then I kind of, nope, my brain just shifts elsewhere and that's fine. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Cause this, this is actually something that uh, I struggle with is so I'm out on a run and suddenly I get like an idea for a podcast or something I want to send out to clients or students. And I'm sure I'm going to forget it. Like, do you, do you have any sort of idea capture technology with you on your runs? No, I'm pretty sure that my 30 best ideas for stories are lost because <laughs> that happened. I could, I could be such a, I could be such a more profound writer if I had that technology. Um, no, I'm with you. And then, 
And then, you know, we're nerding out on running here and writing. But then what happens with me is I don't enjoy the run because I'm trying so hard not to forget the idea. Yeah. And that's, that's no, that's no way to do a trail run is to just be like repeating some idea in your head. And then what can, what can really be killer is you get home and you shower and you write it down and you realize that wasn't that good of an idea after all. Like it wasn't uh, a great idea to begin with. Oh, my, my problem is I get, I write it down or I, I just, I just repeat these three or four words and then I get home and I like, I don't really know what I was thinking. <laughs> like it was a yeah. great idea, but, but, but these words don't tell me what it was anymore. Yeah, no, I, I, I share your pain. Um, <laughs> I wish I had a solution. I do not. Oh, uh, well, I mean, I have a solution. It doesn't, I don't know that it's worth it, but like, you know, I'll have, I'll have the iPhone on, uh, you know, around my, uh, my waist in a waist pack. And then I just have like a one button to some recorder. And then I try, I try not to like slow down too much or stop, but you know, like I'll listen to it later and I'm just like panting and wheezing and cars are going by and honking. And, um, so that's, that's, that's my current solution. <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. I don't love running with it, uh, the phone. Even if I like were to turn it on airplane mode, it's just like it bobs up and down. Um, yeah. But on, on my long runs, I will. I'll run with my because I like like you. Sometimes I'll do pretty long trail runs, and it's just a matter of safety. I, I haven't had to call my wife and be like, "I'm totally out of gas. Come get me." Um, but I'll run with the phone on some of my longer trail runs. Uh, and yeah, you know, maybe once or twice I've, I've pulled up like the note function and, and jotted down an idea, but generally I probably just lose those, those ideas. <laughs> right. Or, or maybe we could just have faith that the ideas, the good ones will come back. Right? Yeah. The, the courage to run without working. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. Um, so just getting back to the, how exercise shapes you, just maybe it's just a few more of the things that you discovered when you started researching, like all these other ways in which exercise is, is helpful to us as, as human beings. Yeah. So I, I, there's, there's, there's the whole physiological suite of things, right? So it's good for your weight. It's good for your bones. It's good for your blood sugar. It's good for your heart. Um, Although there, there are some myths around arthritis, there's a fair amount of research that shows that if you are thoughtful in how you approach running, again, and you kind of adhere to that, yes, stress yourself, but make sure you recover. Running actually can strengthen your joints, and, 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 and runners don't have cartilage problems. So it's, it's a very long-winded way of saying that running is very good for you physiologically. Um, some of the more recent research that I think is fascinating is around the psychological benefits of running. Um, so there, there are more and more studies. They all have small sample sizes, so it's hard to say like this is a conclusive finding, but the evidence has led me to believe um, that, that running or engaging in any kind of hard physical activity um, can help increase one's willpower. Uh, so I guess the theory would go that if you have a physical practice that you push yourself relatively hard in, you might be better able to resist saying something to a colleague that after you say it, you wish you wouldn't have said, or to make healthy food choices, um, or I should say to resist junk food. And the, the, the theory there goes is that when you're exercising, you're basically training your willpower. 
So on that five-mile run that you want to do at 7-10 pace, like you said, it's, it's going to hurt. And even if you're very zen about accepting the pain and playing with it and trying to enjoy it, odds are there will be a time in that run where you have to make a decision. And that decision is, do I slow down or do I continue to, to push? And in that instant, you're training your willpower, right? You're making a hard choice. And oftentimes it's a hard choice. I want to tell my colleague that he or she is just so dumb, but you pause and you're like, do I really need to do that? No, you make the hard choice. You keep on going. Or, you know, the Cheetos are in front of me. They're right there at my friends and I, I want to grab a handful. And again, it's a hard choice not to, but you're making that hard choice. Um, so to me, that, that, that's a very, it, 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 it's intuitive. It makes a lot of sense. And like I said, there's enough science there where I, where I believe that that is an effective exercise. Yeah. And I, and I found for myself and for, for some of my clients that actually pushing through the run or whatever is much easier than resisting the impulse because I know uh, the run is going to be over, but the impulse is like, like, you know, when have I won? <laughs> How, you know, I've resisted the Cheetos for a minute, five minutes, 10 minutes. Like, you know, there's no, there's no finish line, but with, with an activity, it's like, okay, if I just do this for 10 more minutes, so it, it feels much more doable, even though it may be objectively much harder. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably true. And it's not that because you run, you're going to be, you know, have steadfast willpower and, and you'll always resist the cheetahs. What the science just shows is it makes you more likely to be able to pause and resist the cheetahs. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a much, I'm much better like you at pushing through a run than I am at resisting with cheetahs. <laughs> but I think, I'd, I think I'd probably be worse at resisting with cheetahs if I didn't run to begin with. Um, and again, I know we're talking about running because we're both runners, but I want to be clear for listeners it, you could you could get this benefit by doing the elliptical trainer, by doing the stair climber, by lifting weights. Um, the, the mechanism doesn't much matter, nor does the intensity. You don't have to be an ultra runner like Howard to do this. You could go out for a two-mile run as, as long as it's hard for you and you're doing something that's hard for you. And, and in the moment, you're making a choice to continue to do it. That tends to have all sorts of spillover benefits. Yeah, and, and certainly my definition of what intensity looks like has changed a lot in the three months that I've been training. You know, so if I was if I was still doing the runs I was doing in May, like I wouldn't I wouldn't I don't think I'd be getting much benefit. Sure, because if you've trained, you've you've increased your your fitness and your tolerance to to run harder, longer, faster. Yeah, yeah. So another question for you before we before we wrap up is, like, how do you do research? How do you decide, like, you know, where where you look, what how you evaluate studies, like how do you go about, you have a hunch, how do you go about using research sort of respectfully and, and as you know, as you had a non-siloed approach to, to confirm or, or, um, or deny or, um, or shape your conclusions as opposed to like, Hey, I have this idea. Let me just go out and find stuff that proves it. Yeah. It's, it's a really, that's a really good question. Um, so I, my initial process is I have an idea. I have a hunch because I've read, you know, this, this psychology book or this behavioral economics book. And I know this theory from physiology and, and they seem pretty well related. So the first thing I'll do is I'll look and I'll, I'll see, is there a, 
study that actually looks at whatever my hunch is. So, so has someone actually done a, a randomized control trial in a scientific setting and published it in a peer-reviewed journal? Oftentimes, that's not the case, especially, like I said, when I'm looking across domains, that hasn't happened. So the second thing that I'll do is rather than just come up with a narrative that makes sense to me and might make sense to others, I'll get on the phone. Um, I, I mean, ideally, I do this in person, but oftentimes there's geographical barriers. So I'll get on the phone or Skype. Um, I don't like to email, but sometimes you email uh, with, with the researchers that are experts in their silo field. And I'll say, hey, I have this idea. Can you give me your thoughts on it? Mm-hmm. And more often than not, for every article I publish, there are two that I don't because their thoughts are doesn't really make sense or the mechanism's different, and here's why. Uh-huh. Um, but when it, 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 it is a, is a writer, and it gets kind of back to my, one of my many purposes, which is to help inspire people, but to do so, you know, it's, it's kind of like what I don't want to be is a person that is seen as kind of, wishy-washy, preachy self-help that's not based on evidence. I want to inspire people and help people, but I want to do it in a way that's based on evidence because that will have the best chance of it working. Um, so it's hard, right? You think you have a great idea, you think it works, it's hard to kill that idea. But for me, I kind of come back to that purpose and I'm like, well, you know, if this isn't actually going to work or, or, or help people, um, I don't want to put that out there. Right. But there's a lot of crap out there. Oh my God. I was going to ask you about that. You know, at the, at the end of your article, you cite this like, you know, don't run a marathon sort of as, as exhibit a, it, it must make you cringe to see so many of your colleagues just sort of running with half-baked or un, uh, you know, unsupported concepts. Yeah, it does. Um, it does. It gets back to a theme that we were speaking about earlier, right? Like, the message is often in, in any discipline in this kind of like the literature on human performance, let's call it in, in all the domains that all the, the academic fields that feed into that. Generally it's, you have to put in the work. It's not going to be easy. You might be uncomfortable. Here are some good ways that you can put in the work and here are some kind of tips that might help, help you put in the work and help you get the most out of the work. But very rarely does someone publish a, top seven hacks to, you know, improve your cognitive ability. And I've yet to find the magical supplement that will make me a superhuman athlete or a superhuman thinker. Um, (laughs) It's just not out there. Uh, So I'm not, you know, I'm not selling something that's nearly as sexy as that. But what I am selling and what I hold myself to is is ideas and and practices that are backed in evidence. Um, and it's not to say that science doesn't change. Often science changes as well, but I'm of the belief that generally, I mean, the best that we have to go on is science. So that's what I try to go on. Yeah. Um, you know, also like in, in, you know, I write a lot about, uh, food and nutrition. And one of the things that, um, you know, professional writers, journalists, and scientists complain to me about is that, the stuff they're writing is boring because everybody already knows it. So it's not getting published. Like no one wants to read another frigging article about kale. Yeah. Like, do you, you know, do you ever have, just have that in terms of like the economics of your profession is, is you say, you know, I have an article on like why we have to work hard in order to achieve our goals. And they're like, no, you know, we need something <laughs> sexy. 
Yeah, I think, you know, I try to use that as fuel because to me it means, all right, I need to write, like my writing needs to be good and I need to spend a lot of time telling this in a compelling way because like you said, like it's not too sexy. So the writing, it's, it, it, the writing itself better be sexy. Huh. The, the other thing, again, because my beat is kind of like pulling from different domains and connecting things that might not have been connected before. Um, so that can often bring some newness to it. So I think if I was just writing about behavioral economics for behavioral economists, the well would dry up rather fast, but because I'm taking things from behavioral economics and applying them to fitness, it's new and fresh. And because I'm taking things from fitness and physiology and applying them to, you know, human psychology and in cognitive performance, it can be fresh there. Um, if you talk to me in two years, I might be like, oh my God, Howard, like my well is dry. What should I do? <laughs> and, and that's when we can publish our, our, uh, our nine, nine hacks to, to this, that, or the other. <laughs> that's, that's great. I, and I love, you know, you, you helped me think about my own writing in a different way. Like there's, there's days in which I go, you know, why am I pushing this message of like, eat your fruits and vegetables when the people, you know, it's so trite and boring and like, what, what else can I say about it? Well, you know, the challenge there is the same as the challenge in, in running a race, like, like create a new personal record, like do something better than yep. you've ever done it or better than anyone's ever done it. I love that. I think you just, uh, you just helped help me write my next 10 articles better. Thank you. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I could help now, but again, coming full circle, it's not easy, right? Like I throw away all kinds of stuff. Um, because it's it, like it, it it's hard. It's a challenge. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'd like to say I throw away stuff, but I'm like, well, that's what my blog's for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, tell tell us a little bit more about the the book and when it might come out and how folks can can stay in touch and follow your your ex excellent writing. So thank you. The um, the book is called Peak Performance. Um, it's it, coming out in June of 2017. I think June 6th is the, the tentative sale date. Um, and then in terms of, in terms of staying in touch and following my writing, I'm, I'm fairly active on Twitter where I'm, uh, my handle is at B Stahlberg, just like my name. Um, and then my website is also my name. So www.bradstahlberg.com. And uh, there's a contact form on there. And, and something that I just love is when folks reach out, um, with questions, with compliments, and also, you know, disagreements as well, because it helps me think about things in a different way and, and really forces me to uh, to make sure I'm being bulletproof on, on the work that I'm trying to do. Awesome. All right, I'll put all those links in the show notes and uh, hope folks will, will follow you because, uh, you know, you're every, every time you write something now, I, I, I learn something, I get a little nuance, and most importantly, I, I come away with a nugget that I, can, I know I'm going to use to help somebody. So I really appreciate the, the work you're doing, and I'm, I'm personally selfishly glad you, uh, you left the world of consulting to do what you're doing now. Well, thank you. It's, it's an honor to hear that from you, um, and I, I've, I've really enjoyed this hour, and hopefully, uh, hopefully listeners like it, but um, I've got a lot to think about just coming out of this conversation, so thank you, too. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Brad. Bye. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes with links to Brad's article and everything else we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 180. And 
If you want to get healthy and fit, even if you've tried before and failed, though especially if you've tried before and failed, check out bigchangeprogram.com. The new uh, description isn't up yet, but we are about to start in November 2016, our final run of the Big Change Program for 2016. And so we'll be opening it up next week, but check it out now. Start thinking about it. If you have any questions, let me know. HJ yourself.com. Okay, if you're new to this podcast, you can catch up on 179 archived episodes that you've been for a while over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast but not the weekly email newsletter, why don't you get over to plantyourself.com and sign up for that as well. Thanks to Plant Yourself Podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Merrill, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Zell Tolkanovsky, David Vizek, the Mysterious Michelle XL, Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Delaya Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Holt, Josina, Julianne Rowland. <laughs> for your generous support of the podcast. If you would like to support this show, you can share this and other episodes on social media, via email, tell your friends. You can write a review on iTunes. Oh, that helps so much. It really does. And you can become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or an ongoing gift to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. So I just had a meeting with, uh, with a guy, a local guy, who's going to help me build outbuilding office so it's going to be my own little space i won't have to be quiet and sneak around the house and i'm thinking about putting in the, uh, an audio rack for some better equipment so uh, if you want to be uh, be part of that it's a good time to, to pledge and you can do that um, at plantyourself.com over on the right side where it says donate or patreon in garden news, it's real exciting to see all of the greens we planted last month now coming up and looking like food, from the mizuna to the mustard greens to a beautiful patch of bok choy. So we're getting to the point where I can stop buying greens from the supermarket and now just go out to my own backyard and pick them. Boy, is that an exciting feeling to know that I know everything about this plant from the time it was a Last weekend, I was at the Raleigh, North Carolina Veg Fest, where I met some people who are going to be podcast guests in the future. Laura Theodore, the jazzy vegetarian, has agreed to come on to my podcast, and we're going to schedule that for next month. And also now it's going to be a, a second time uh, appearance by Ellen Jaffe Jones, who is a plant-based coach and runner, championship runner. She has a new book called Vegan Fitness for Mortals that she was kind enough to uh, give me and sign for me and so you know now I'm all on this fitness kick and not just on the plant-based kick so uh, uh, I, I appreciate her work even more now than I did the first time I interviewed her gosh must have been two or three years ago so uh, that's all for this week and as always be well my friends all right time for thanks thanks to will ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song sabali dawn the dance of peace you can find more of will's music at his website willridenauer.com and of course thanks to all of you plant yourself podcast patrons 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Lukanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X. Elspeth Feldman, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gila, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva L, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Ashra Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sawyer Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>